I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. Even by Donald Trump's standards, the tweets were appalling. Six times this month, the president took to his favorite social media platform to suggest that a young woman who once worked for one of his media critics, former Florida congressman and MSNBC host Joe Scarborough, may have been murdered. Never mind that her death was ruled a tragic accident years ago. And there isn't an ounce of evidence to suggest anything else. Now, after a heart-rendering letter from the former Scarborough staffer's husband, the spotlight is on Twitter about what, if anything, it will do about the president's tasteless conspiracy mongering. We'll talk to Kara Swisher, one of the most influential writers about all things Silicon Valley, on our powerful New York Times op-ed headlined, Twitter Must Cleanse the Trump Stain. And we'll talk to right-wing provocateur and longtime Trump backer Ann Coulter about her recent tweet storm calling the president, quote, a complete moron on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, you remember the phrase many years ago from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, defining deviancy down. It was an allusion to how we all become accustomed to abhorrent behavior, deviant behavior, and we don't speak out against it. And that's kind of what's happened with Trump's tweets. But... You know, with the caveat that whenever you think you've like we've gone to the lowest depths of a Donald Trump comment or tweet, he always manages to go down even lower. And I got to say, these tweets about the uh, former Scarborough staffer are about as low as I can remember anything Trump doing or saying. Yeah, I totally agree that the problem is is the weird power of uh, Trump's shamelessness. You know, he does this stuff with impunity and and then, you know, he ends up getting kind of graded on a curve. It, it becomes harder and harder to shock. We become inured to this. Now, this this behavior is shocking, but I have to say, if the husband, the widower of this young woman who died had not come forward, uh, with this uh, incredibly wrenching letter that he wrote to Twitter, we might not be having this conversation. You know, part of the problem is, and this is a challenge that you know we've, I think, talked about on this podcast, and we're going to be facing uh, throughout the rest of this election cycle and beyond, which is the, do you write about these conspiracy theories, these awful tweets, even when you're debunking them, or does that simply amplify them. Uh, we had Rick Stengel on our podcast the other day who 
you know, wrote this book about disinformation, and he talked about this uh, notion of belief echoes, and uh, this is a problem. In, th- in this particular case, uh, you know, there, there, there is something truly newsworthy, which is what is Twitter going to do about it? And we'll get into that conversation with, uh, with Kara Swisher. Yeah, this is, I think, a huge issue for Twitter and social media in general. But you referenced that letter from the husband, and it is really something. I think it's a letter everybody should read. I'm just going to read some of it. This is a direct, open letter to Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter. And I'm just going to take a moment and read a little bit. Nearly 19 years ago, my wife, who had an undiagnosed heart condition, fell and hit her head on her desk at work. She was found dead the next morning. Her name is Lori K. Klausudis, and she was 28 years old when she died. Her passing is the single most painful thing that I have ever had to deal with in my 52 years and continues to haunt her parents and sister. Then he goes on to talk about the constant barrage of falsehoods half-truths and conspiracy theories that have still percolated out there about his late wife's death. And he goes on to write, the frequency, intensity, ugliness, and promulgation of these horrifying lies ever increases on the internet. These conspiracy theorists, including most recently the president of the United States, continue to spread their bile and misinformation on your platform, disparaging the memory of my wife and our marriage. President Trump on Tuesday tweeted to his nearly 80 million followers, alluding to the repeatedly debunked falsehood that my wife was murdered by her boss, former U.S. Representative Joe Scarborough. He includes some of those tweets. These are tweets seen by, again, 80 million people that follow Donald Trump. When will they open a cold case on the psycho Joe Scarborough matter in Florida? Florida, did he get away with murder? And they're all of the same kind. You know, his message is pleading, please don't let the president do this on your platform. You know, Take these down. I'm asking you to intervene. This is the husband writing again in this instance because the president is taking something that does not belong to him, the memory of my dead wife, and perverted it for perceived political gain. We have talked about almost an endless stream of kind of uh, shocking tweets from this president on this podcast. Uh, But this one, I, I just can't kind of wrap my mind around. It is so appalling. It is so hurtful. Uh, It is so pointless. I mean, what is Donald Trump getting out of this? Uh, I I don't, I don't really get it. And um, it's just a very, very sad sign of our times. I just want to, before we move on to the show, just want to mention one other sad sign of our times. Uh, This is a story that uh, broke over the over the last uh, 24 hours uh, against a, a, vi- a horrible video of police abuse involving a, an African-American suspect on social media, a guy by the name of George Floyd. This was a nonviolent charge in Minneapolis, and the police officer had his knee on his neck on the ground for five minutes while the guy was saying, in an echo of that awful Eric Garner case on Staten Island in 2014. I, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And the guy could no longer breathe, and he finally died. The um, only uh, silver lining here uh, in, in this case is that uh, the mayor in Minneapolis, who I did not know anything about, uh, uh, Jacob Fry is his name, uh, today pretty quickly 
fired all four of the police officers who were involved in this. Didn't put them on leave with pay or without pay. He just flat out fired them. There's going to be an FBI investigation. The question is whether police abuse or civil rights charges will ever be brought in this case. The police officers are, of course, innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. But too often in these kinds of cases, the bar for justice has been too high for the victims. And I will just read very, very quickly what he said in his press conference on today, the day which we're recording this podcast, being black in America should not be a death sentence. For five minutes, we watched a white officer press his knee into a black man's neck. Five minutes, when you hear someone calling for help, you're supposed to help. This offer failed in the most basic human sense. So um, yeah. pretty pretty, uh, pretty powerful stuff. And... Um, we're going to see more of, of these kinds of um, incidents and, and until something pretty profound changes in our, in our society. Well, on that sober note, let's get on with the show. We now have with us Kara Swisher, co-founder of Recode, a contributing writer for the New York Times, professional podcaster, and one of the most influential voices on technology. Kara, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much. What a good name for a podcast. Well, we are really honored to have you on right now because you wrote this incredibly influential column for the New York Times on Tuesday, Twitter must cleanse the Trump stain about Trump's tweet storms promoting these wild conspiracy theories about a former staffer who once worked for Joe Scarborough, one of the president's media critics. You urged Twitter to take down Trump's tweets because they clearly would seem to violate Twitter's policies. Twitter has now responded with a statement that doesn't do what you are asking them to do. What do you make of Twitter's response? Well, you know, they didn't they didn't not say it. It's interesting because they didn't say, no, we're not going to take them down. They didn't say anything. They just said they had a lot of feels about the whole thing. Uh, I think I wasn't suggesting it. it's the man who uh, the widower of this woman who was killed accidentally and that Trump is purporting had an affair with Joe Scarborough and he murdered her. Who knows what he's saying? It, I don't even want to repeat it because it's so ridiculous and has been reported out many, many times. But, you know, I think it's a typical Twitter response, which is a non-response, which is we feel your pain. We're working on some tools to stop this kind of this kind of thing. That's the, things like this, which, of course, it's about uh, dragging a dead woman through the streets just for your political gain. And so I think it's very typical of Twitter is they don't have a solution right now and they don't want to make a decision. And they've done this before. They did it around Alex Jones. They took their time. They they thought and they thought and they thought and they considered it and considered it and considered it. And I just think as as we near get near the election and as and with Donald Trump and more political uh, trouble, I think they're especially around coronavirus and the election and everything else, they're going to get much more of this. And they have to have some policy to deal with him particularly and the problem in general. Well, you, Kara, you go through all of the different options other than doing nothing. One of them would be to kick him off Twitter. Go through them. Tell us what the, the options are and why you settled on the one you did, because you, you do agree with the widower of, of, of this woman. 
Yes, I do. Um, I have come around in different ways. I've written different things over time. And, you know, there's one group of people that thinks you should be completely banned. I think that's drastic and probably would cause more problems. Although I have to say without Twitter, he'd be much hobbled, I think. There's no other platform. I've written a column about this. There's no other platform that he can share such a dysfunctional relationship with and get his message out. He governs on it. He settles petty scores. He he touts crazy yeah. schemes and things. You don't see him doing this on TikTok, in other words. No, I don't see him doing it. <laughs> TikTok dance, and I hope to, to heaven that it doesn't happen. It doesn't work anywhere else because all the media is there. All the all the right pe- all the right people are the polit- the politicians, the media, uh, general citizens, his base, and so it works really well for him. Without Twitter, I think he'd have a, he'd be hobbled for sure. So that's one thing banning him, and I think that's just ridiculous. It's, he is newsworthy. He is the president of the United States, and I agree in part with Twitter's idea that what he has to say is newsworthy. My problem is they do take newsworthy people off there. Take they remove. Removed Bolsonaro's tweets. They've removed all kinds of people. They they removed Nancy Pelosi's daughter's tweets. They banned people for a few days. They do all kinds of things. It's just capricious, except with him, which is they let him continue to do whatever he wants. And again, it's like he's walking down the Fifth Avenue of Twitter and he's shooting someone and he he doesn't get arrested. And why? Why? Take us inside Twitter's thinking. First, they try to sort of wrap themselves in the cloak of the First Amendment, which is ridiculous because Twitter, whether you whether you, you it's like one, it's not a public square. It is not the government. The First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It does not say Twitter shall make no law. It does not say Facebook could, should make no law. And in fact, these companies can do whatever they want. They just choose not to. And that's very different. And what they do is they sort of do this First Amendment. You don't want us deciding speech. I was like, I, 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 we, we let NBC do it. We let The Washington Post do it. We let Fox News do it. Everybody, any media platform, which this is, decides that all the time. And and is not. it's not a First Amendment issue. It's it, And it's not censorship either. It's that when you violate the norms of, of a platform, you are you are removed or temporarily removed. So you can ban them. And I don't think that's the case because some of the some of them you some of the stuff you want to see. You want to see his state of mind and things like that. And you want to see him do 120 tweets in one day because, you know, he doesn't have anything else to do but run the country. So you want to understand his point of view. But I think right now we've gotten that he likes conspiracy theories and he has dragged this woman far too long to be tolerable. Second thing you can do is convene a body like Facebook is doing, the content board. And that will that rises these these things to an independent board away from these companies, which Facebook is trying to do, and makes decisions on big topics, big things that have come up to appeal. This could be appealed to that board, and then that board would deal with it. The problem with those things are Facebook is going to have 40 people on this Supreme Court of content. And, you know, it could be like the United Nations. That's what I call it in a column, you know, and that means just as useful and possibly the League of Nations. And that would be really bad. So that's one issue. But it can, you know, having a measured debate about these issues with people that aren't screaming at each other on Twitter and then attaching gifts might be helpful. That's one way to do it. I think it's slow moving and they could have done it a long time ago. I think they can remove tweets. They can remove individual tweets and make an example that doesn't stop people from repeating them or taking pictures of them. But the fact matters, it goes to the one person and says, you can't do this. 
We're going to make an example of you. That works a lot. That To me, that is a really smart way to do it. And then lastly, they can ban them for a few days. You know, just take them off and put them back on. They do, I, I've, I've almost been banned for putting up a phone number by accident. I, I was retweeting someone. Yeah. And uh, they came right. They were at me in seconds. Yeah, I mean, you ban them, you ban them, you make them a martyr, right? That's right, but where's he going to scream about it, right? Like, uh, whatever. <laughs> there is one more that you mentioned, I think, which is that you can, they could label his tweets false. That's where they're leaning. And I reported that. I talked about uh, that, which is where they're, they're in the middle of creating a rubric around these things. This is a lie. Here are the factual articles next to them. It's interesting, but it's really onerous to do. It's not scalable. They can only do it sometimes. And almost every tweet of his is going to have a, a little asterisk next to it. And so and do people click in? Do they see it? Do they? It's a really um, I just think certain tweets are not newsworthy. They are uh, verifiably false and they can take them down to make a point. And they don't ha it doesn't have to be across the system. They don't have to be consistent. Some people are going to get away with doing it. It's just like running red lights, just like you don't catch them all, but you do catch some of them and you do give someone a ticket. And that's, to me, the best way to, to think about it. Yeah. So, Kara, this strikes me as a pretty clear example of the mounting tensions between the the sort of in tech world and social media world in particular between their their basic business strategy you know raison d'etre for twitter it's to promote more free expression yes they're not washington post or the new york times but they're trying to go beyond that they're trying to let all of us speak right that's that's their sort of whole marketing reason for being and the tension between that and you know the sort of vile disinformation and conspiracy theories that is is sucking the life out of our politics um and so you have thought more written more about that tension than anybody take us inside twitter to the extent that you can about you know are they feeling the heat over this are they are they beginning to realize that there is a clear tension there that they have to address i think inside yes i get a lot of notes from people you'd be surprised inside that company I have a lot of access to that company, and there's a reason, because people do not like this decision. And I have had more people than you can imagine at Twitter going, keep doing it, Kara, keep pressing, it's working. Don't, like, you all need to keep pressing and do not like these decisions and think it's a very easy decision on some levels. Um, I think what's happened is they've let it go along, they let it go so long with Donald Trump that it's really hard to do anything now. I mean, if they had done it initially, uh, it might have stuck, but it's like giving someone sugar, a kid sugar all the time. And in the end, you have a diabetic, insane child. Right. And so that's one of the issues. It's gone on so long. And now we're right in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, if I could just break in on that point, I mean, my first reaction to Trump's tweet storm about this is I, I just you know, tweeted birtherism 2.0. And, you know, Trump's birtherism phase goes back, what, to like 2011. So, But yeah, let yeah. me just say, Barack Obama knows what he's getting into when he gets into it. It's a shame and it's d disgusting what they were doing around him. But so does Joe Scarborough. What's really powerful here is this letter from this widower who 20 years on 
is not allowed to bury his wife in peace. You know what I mean? He clearly is in pain, but he, he, he had a very dignified letter. And so, you know, it's hardly, it is about Joe Scarborough, but it's not. It's it's that President Trump is, is obsessed with hurting Joe Scarborough and therefore doesn't mind throwing anything at him, including this woman's memory and impugning her. And by the way, he's, li- he's not used very hard to prove a libel case for Joe Scarborough, although he certainly could sue uh, the president for these insinuations that are untrue because they're, they're obviously meant to be malevolent. And so that's one of the, the, the um, malice. I think there's malice there. That's pretty clear. But this woman is not a public figure. She was not a public figure. And uh, he, is, he is libeling her almost daily now at this point, um, including referring to her directly, not, and not just in terms of Scarborough, but saying that she, she was having an affair. She was uh, just all kinds of stuff. And so I think it's a really dangerous road that Donald Trump's gone down, but uh, he knows that he can do it and no one's going to do anything about it. Actually, the analogy, which I think you did reference, you did reference in your piece is the Seth Rich case, which I've written and and did a podcast about as well, in which an, a family with a whose son was tragically murdered in a botched robbery becomes fodder for conspiracy theories. What did Fox it, News it, have it to do there? They had to walk it back. They yes. did. See, they were forced right. to walk it back. So Donald Trump needs to walk it back or, or make him walk well, it back. I don't know. Just whatever. Say, we're going to take you off unless you walk this back. So, Kara, uh, Isakoff set this up as a kind of for Twitter as a kind of clash of principles between free expression, let the community work this out and the Political corrosiveness and, and civic danger responsibility. Of, yeah. Yeah. No, but all the corrosiveness and danger of conspiracy theories. But I guess my question for you is, is it really about business at the end of the day. I mean, they would see this as a slippery slope, but Trump has 80 million followers. You know, what are the kind of business considerations that make this difficult for uh, Twitter? Well, I don't think they make any money off of Donald Trump. He certainly calls yeah. attention to the platform, but it's not good attention. You know, when Twitter was was looking at selling itself, a lot of people didn't want to get near it with it. You know, Bob Iger from Disney talked about it publicly, like in his book, like I'm not I'm not touching this disaster mm-hmm. zone. Um, so they can't. I mean, they're not for sale right now. They're doing a lot better. I don't think it's particularly good for their business to have this be their number one customer. Like this, 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 inter, the most epic internet troll of all time is their best customer. It's. I think it's a real problem from a financial point of view. And, and it's also hindered them from really doing the things like they're being surpassed by TikTok, by Snapchat, by Facebook. And, you know, they had so much potential here. I think it spends a lot of time like they just recently are starting to do decent threaded conversations. You know, what's going on over there? They can't iterate their platform. Um, look at Instagram. It's sort of eaten their lunch on so many different aspects of it. But don't they worry about the perception that they would be taking sides in a, you know, uh, the most polarized political thing in this country, Donald Trump versus the rest of the country. They've done it. They've pulled down lots of different sides. They have done it before. That is what that's one thing. One, they make the First Amendment arguments, but they do it all the time. They make choices all the time. They take things down all the time. And then here they're like, no, we don't do that. So why not? I still don't understand. Why not? Because he's the news. Everything, everything that comes out of his mouth, even the bile is newsworthy. It is not so. It is just not. so. And then these first. What's interesting about Silicon Valley is 
they talk about free speech. I don't even think they've read the First Amendment half the time. You know what I mean? Like, I think what it is, is they've designed these systems to be viral, which is an interesting word, which I'm writing about next week. Um, they've designed them for growth and they've designed them for speed, which leads to this, which is exactly why this is happening. They did not construct them for context, accuracy, and speed is fine. That's not a necessarily a bad thing. And so one of my issues when they do the First Amendment things is a lot of these people, I like to call them libertarian lights. I don't even think they understand some of the stuff they're saying. Uh, you know, let's live and let live. Well, let me just be clear. The people that design these platforms are typically, and I, I it's just, I, you don't, don't rely on me. Look at the statistics that come out of each of these companies. These companies are 70 to 90% white men in charge. It's really fast. Sorry, you two white men, but that's the fact of the matter there. <laughs> Most of the people who design these platforms have never felt unsafe a day in their lives. Let me just reiterate that never been unsafe. And they do not have the empathy to understand other people, whether it's women on the platform. They've had a very bad history of dealing with bullying and stalking on this platform. They've never, all of them do, not just Twitter, by the way. Um, they don't understand what it's like to be a Sandy Hook parent who has lost children. They just, they have to have, you know, they didn't, they designed, say, Facebook Live. Let me, let me pick on Facebook because I always enjoy doing that. Facebook Live, years ago, I, when I went to see it for the first time, I said, what about bullying, suicides, murder? I was listing all the things that could happen using Facebook Live. Maybe a mass murderer will take over it and broadcast his murder. And they called me a bummer. I remember, I'll never forget that. You're a bummer. I said, yeah, I'm a bummer. What does that mean? Because I was like, you might, you know, you don't want to get in the way of innovation. I said, oh, I would like you to please think about your what you're making and put in proper tools and guardrails to make it work better. Because it's a great idea, but someone's going to strap a GoPro on their helmet and do a mass murder over Facebook. Trust me, that will happen. And it did, of course. And then later they're like, oh, we had no idea. And, oh, we can't do anything about it. Well, it's because they built it that way, and it's operating the way they built it. Let me ask you about one of those white men, Jack Dorsey, the uh, CEO of Twitter. Um, he's not as out there as, say, Zuckerberg is. You rarely see him uh, publicly commenting about anything. First of all, is he the decision maker on these matters? Is this driven by him and uh, primarily and would take us inside his head? Well, there's a lot of people involved. There's a really smart woman who runs as a general counselor, Vijagadi. Uh, she's she's not there this week, as I, I believe she's out for a short time. But, you know, Jack is really the soul of this this thing right now. There's been other founders there, but I think he's the soul of it. And by the way, let me just be clear. I like Jack Dorsey. I think he's thoughtful. He's compared to a lot of the people I cover. He actually is extraordinarily thoughtful. And I know people hate me complimenting him, but he just is. It's very hard not to have a really interesting and fascinating conversation with him. That said, I think he doesn't understand the, the scope of this in a way, and he needs more people disagreeing with him. And I think that's what sometimes happens in these places, that there's not, there's a lot of, you know, head shake. You'd be surprised how much, you know, go along to get along there is in Silicon. You'd think in an iconoclastic kind of atmosphere, but a lot of these people live in the same, um, they, they just reinforce each other. What about uh, pressure from within? I mean, you kind of alluded to that before a little bit, but in terms of the Twitter workforce, this is such an appalling story. That letter was so wrenching. Is there any chance that that would have an impact at Twitter and with Jack Dorsey? I, 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 you might wonder why I get so much good information from inside Twitter. 
Yes, they're very yeah. unhappy. There's a lot of yeah. people unhappy. And they're not, they want to at least have, look, at the very least, they should have a public, if they want to act like a public square, let's have a public discussion about this, where we can have measured discussion and not a, a tweet storm where everybody's putting, get, sending idiotic gifts to each other and, and sort of topping each other and calling you a bitch or whatever the heck they want to do. I don't forget what I've been called today, but I'm fine with it. And by the way, let me just say, the, the whole point of this column was, Joe Scarborough is going to be okay. It's not great to be accused of murder. That's not great, and an affair that you didn't have that that's and you didn't you didn't do the murder. That's not great, but he's he's in the public sphere. He's picked a fight with President Trump for a long time now. They used to be close. Now they aren't. He knows the price of this kind of thing. Donald Trump knows the price of this kind of thing. This widower is not these people and doesn't. I know the price. By the way, I get a lot of flack on Twitter and elsewhere. I'm I don't love it. And some of it's frightening, but I'm fine. Like, I'll be fine. It's the it's people like this that are the victims of this ridiculous tolerance of things that would get anybody banned for life from Twitter for doing. And that's my issue is that oh. let's be let's be fair. If you, if you want to be fair, some of it is newsworthy. Some of it is just not. And it's OK to say so. OK, let's say, you know, Jack Dorsey and Twitter, they, they don't succumb to the public pressure, and they don't decide on their own that they're going to make any changes here. So it's just, he, did they just continue this with impunity, or is there something else that should be done? Do, are you in favor of you know more aggressive regulation? How do you deal with this? It depends on the regulation, of course. Now, listen, the, the internet has never been regulated. Let's be clear. Every other major industry, and by these are the richest people in the world, in world history, they have the most uh, valuable companies in the world, and there is no regulation except to protect them, which is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. Mm, yeah. There are no regulations, except California is sort of trying to get this privacy bill in place, but it's hard during this pandemic. There, And Europe has, of course, imposed strictures on them, which they just kick and scream about. But for the most important industry in history has no regulations. That's like chemical companies getting to do whatever they want. There is a, there is a need for privacy regulation. There is a need for hacker uh, legislation. There is a need for all kinds of different things here, including I, I wrote about recently the fact that many of these founders cannot ever be fired by their boards. They have no they have no accountability. They, in fact, their grandchildren, Mark Zuckerberg's grandchildren can't be fired from running Facebook or making this. And he has a unilateral decision making. And some of these stock schemes that they have put that in place. But I don't think I think what Twitter will do, which is what it always does, which is nothing. And they hope people will go away and it'll calm down and we'll be on to the next ridiculous whatever it is, the woman in the park screaming at that that uh, poor man, that birder who who will be on to the next Twittery distraction, which is. It, which is Donald Trump's whole point here is to create distraction, given that he has never actually tweeted uh, his condolences for the 100,000 Americans that have, or anybody who has died of COVID-19. Look, I think almost anybody reasonable with an ounce of compassion would agree that what Trump has tweeted here is so over the top and out of line. But the problem remains how, where do you draw a line and how do you define it? We draw lines every day. This is such, I'm sorry to say this is such bullshit. We do it all the time and so does Twitter. 
They no, do it every how, single day. How do, you, how do you define what is impermissible to be on Twitter? What is false? What is only semi-false? What is arguable? What is painful? I mean, I... You can... Why are you thinking... Why are you making it such a big, giant pile of a mountain of problems? Pick certain spots. Make examples. That's how law works. Do you think they catch everyone who does bad things in this world? No. They have Michael Isakoff doing a story. You know, they have... Like, just make some choices, and then it sets a tone for the broader community. But if you want to take somebody down or remove a tweet because it violated a policy, you have to clearly enunciate what that policy well, is. Well, what, what policy did they, when they did it to Alex Jones, what was, they did that, right? Well, what was, I mean, you know, what was the standard? Okay, articulate what the policy is. There is a policy there that this one covers. He's done it a zillion times, Michael. It's not even like we're, we're way past what policy is this. He, he is in const, almost constant violation. They should have taken down some of his hydroxychloroquine quotes, they, uh, tweets. They took them down for Bolsonaro. Why didn't they take them down for him? They were worse than Bolsonaro's tweets, by the way. But but is it falsehood? Is it do harm to others? What What's the what's the standard? They, they have lots of different. That's the problem. It's very confusing. But here's the they, they They have promoting violence. They have do harm to others. They have harassment. They have all. It's so wide ranging. You could find something to pin on them. So that's not what, what you want to do. But they can just do it because this is not our company, just the way Disney does it. This is, does not happen in our park. We will kick you out. It happens on, on in the Washington Post. It happens in all kinds of places. People make decisions of what their business is. And like, you know what? You know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. It, like it happens all the time. And you could maybe sue people for it. But you know what? It seems to work and keeps our society in check. This is this is like I've called this is something I've talked about Facebook about. But it's li- it's literally like people who build cities, digital cities, and they they don't provide street signs. They don't provide fire. They don't provide water. They don't provide garbage. They don't provide fire people. It's the purge. It's the purge every day, and they make money doing it. They get, they become billionaires doing it. And at some point, we might say, "Hey, you need to have some. You need to like at least take responsibility for what you're doing, and and you know, let loose, let loose the dogs of war, and just let's see what happens." I mean, they can make decisions. They just don't want to, and not doing it means that it has. There has to be pressure from people like you know. They're hoping it will stop. And I, let me just tell you. I've written seven columns on this. I'm going to write seven more until they like at least start talking about it publicly in a way that is beyond we you know slippery slope argument. It seems to me that the the husband of this young woman who died, Mr. Klesudis, you know, he would be a powerful figure if he were to continue this campaign against uh, Twitter. But you don't think he will because it's been too painful. He's also got he's he's worked for the government in different ways. I think he's probably nervous. He's probably nervous about the retaliation, the kind of ugliness that Mr. Trump brings to bear when someone doesn't agree with him and his his base and the people on Twitter. If you've ever I don't can't imagine this guy wants to he's raised his head in a beautiful way. But boy, is he the on incoming, especially when marshaled by President Trump is really quite difficult to deal with, as anyone who's been under attack by him knows. Kara, just taking a step back, we're in the uh, we're in an election year. 
in which a lot of people are worried about disinformation and conspiracy theories and foreign social media manipulation. You know, these were, we clearly saw it in 2016, too late. We didn't learn about most of it until, much of it until after the election. But right now, as as we're going into this election, what steps are the tech companies taking? Are they doing enough? They say they are taking steps, but I, I want to get your take on, are they doing Doing enough to guard against the kinds of things we saw in 2016 happening again in ways that go beyond what happened before. I think that they are trying, and I think they've definitely mounted defenses. I think what happens is things keep changing really quickly. Like right now, there's a lot of incoming from China about coronavirus. There's some domestic stuff going on uh, that is really damaging that people are throwing up all over the place. I think they've tried really hard to deal with the political advertising part of it, and each of them has made a different decision. Twitter, of course, banned it all together, which it wasn't very big business. It wasn't the heaviest lift for them to do that. Google went down the middle where they said target advertising was a problem. I think Google probably had the best solution. Facebook was like, all bets are off. We're going to let you micro target and lie as much as you want. That's really, they wouldn't characterize it that way, but that's what it is. Um, But political advertising really isn't the problem. Even though it is, even though a million lies to a billion different people in ads is a problem, the content farms are what's problem. I mean, these content that gets created that looks like real content, they use New York Times font, they use BBC font. I had a really good show on misinformation and all the different new things that people are coming up with. Um, a lot of them right now are on COVID, of course. There's a there's one that a bunch of anti-vaxxers are pushing that if you got the flu shot, you're more susceptible to COVID. It's a lie, but they put that up there. Um, so there's always some game going on and then they shift really quickly. It's like the it's a it's like a floating crap game that never stops. And so they have to keep ahead of that. And it's very difficult, but they have been doing a better job. And they're certainly very aware of it. There's also not been as much focus on election security around databases, because uh, this is all done in the state level, how easy it is to manipulate just a database. If you change an address, it can, you could not vote and stuff like that. Voter suppression to me is a much uh, bigger One problem. One on a social security number switched around. Could yeah, I think, voters, I think that's really vulnerable. And it's so it's so dis, disparate across the country. Yeah, the other nightmare scenario is the whole deep fake video uh, issue. Uh, you know, I keep waiting. I mean, I anticipate in the last days or day of the election, deep fakes about some of the, can- you know, with some of the candidates saying things out completely outrageous that they actually didn't say, but it looks... That would be interesting. I think for sure that's an issue. But, you know, ba- bad fakes work too, by the way. You know, they don't have to do that much. They can have, Jesus is for Donald Trump. Did you know that? Like, the Pope is for Donald Donald Trump, things like that. It doesn't have to be that creative, but these content farms are, are like reaching a billion people, like in turn, not just here, but across, let's just not just be so US centric, it's happening across the globe. And so I think that's the content is harder because it's so hard to, to deal with that and to know what's what. And it, it's, they have shades of untruth, so it's very hard. Can you give us an example of a content farm? It's not a phrase I'm intimately familiar with. They're, they're people that make content that looks like the New York Times of stories that are untrue. Uh, There was one that went on forever last election cycle that Hillary Clinton was a lizard. Uh, actually. And it was that was kind of ridiculous. And I literally kept calling Facebook. I'm like, can you take this down? She is not a lizard. I'm pretty certain I've tried to scratch her many times and I've not found lizard skin underneath. <laughs> uh, it, there's crazy stuff like that, but it's also just really shaded. It's sort of tur- like 
stories about did you know that like the Chinese are doing it a lot that it wasn't Wuhan it was Wuhan, like whatever whatever they're pushing against but they're designed to create discord or, or a certain message and they're very subtle pieces of content that look like news that aren't and there's all kinds of things this new one about the flu shot giving you they're being put out as articles medical with doctor picture doc picture dubs of doctors who aren't don't exist of course and stuff like that and that's really hard and it gets into these facebook feeds and these groups and things like that and then there's all these groups on facebook that are impossible to govern and and full of all kinds of information misinformation and there's a difference between misinformation and disinformation as you know disinformation is really a targeted malevolent attempt by state state usually state actors to to cause something to happen typically discord in the case of the russians so with all these horrible things happening on social media, I mean, do you agree with those who say, look, this has become a plague on our civic dialogue and these social media platforms do need to be regulated? I do. I think there's some level of regulation. You know, the person I really look to it, which I thought, you know, as a tech person, of all things, it's a Microsoft executive. You know, Microsoft, as, as you know, Michael, had the case, the, the monopoly case where they were sort of abusing their power and sort of they were sort of the poster child for evil Darth Vader like companies. But uh, uh, Brad Smith, who's this who's the president of Microsoft, is he's also a lawyer. He's written a book called Tools and Weapons. And it's all about the idea of whether this, these technologies and not just not this social media, it's also A.I., facial recognition. There's all kinds of issues around that and how it should be used. Data, the uses of data. It's either a tool or a weapon. That's the name of his book. And so some of these things are astonishing. They're all astonishing tools. The, the cell phone is an astonishing tool. It is also a weapon. And the question is, how do you want to use it? And I think I would recommend that book as a really good, here's what we need to do. Here is smart legislation. I, I do argue with the tech industries, and this started, I did an interview with Mark Zuckerberg about two years ago or less, um, when he started on the China thing, it's the first time I heard it, is that we have to be this big in order for China not to beat us. And that's the sheer, sheer me argument. Like, no, you don't need to be this big. Innovation of small companies is what's made this country great in technology, not giant conglomerations. And what's happened in this pandemic is that the big tech companies are now stronger than ever and include from Amazon, Facebook, Google, most particularly, are going to roll over all kinds of small companies. And that means innovation will have a really hard time because it does not happen at these big companies. Kara, what's the political climate looking to you in, in, like in, in terms of regulation? I mean, do you think that there is a reasonable chance that the, that Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act that, that essentially immunizes, you don't think it'll be repealed or amended? I think people place. talk about it. You know, every now and then Nancy Pelosi says something, someone else, Josh Hawley does. I mean, yeah, Republicans too. I mean, it is bipartisan. Yeah. There's a couple voices. Josh Hawley on the right, for sure, has been one of the more interesting voices. I agree with him on almost nothing, but I think he's a highly intelligent person who's th thinking in interesting ways about this. Obviously, Elizabeth Warren is someone who's talked about this rather extensively. There is a lot of agreement on that there needs to be some. And Nancy Pelosi, of course, has talked about it. Um, 
And so there is some feeling that there will be something. I just think the pandemic, unfortunately, that that sort of it was had some nice momentum going on in this country. It's already taken off in Europe and other and in New Zealand with their fabulous uh, leader who's astonishing. There's all kinds of countries that are working on this, but the U.S. has been super late. I think there was momentum. I'm not sure what's going to happen coming out of the pandemic because we're going to need they're going to I mean, corporations are sort of going to be touted and and the tech companies have performed you know, Amazon's delivering your groceries, Google's getting you information, Netflix is getting you movies. So they have, a, they have, Facebook is doing a really good job getting you good health information. So they performed better here and they, they're going on kind of a redemption tour. So I'm not sure what the mood will be in Washington and if there's any kind of energy to focus on it, because we have a lot of other things to do. So I'm, I don't know, but, you know, still Elizabeth Warren and AOC, we're just talking about an anti-merger bill, um, which was interesting. Josh Hawley talks about it. There's several Congress people. So I think it's still alive in some fashion. I think the worst thing for tech in their minds, not and not in my mind at all, would be Vice President Elizabeth Warren. I think that would scare the living daylights out of tech, not tech people. And Mark <laughs> called her an existential crisis. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of other existential crises like death, Mark, that might be worse than Elizabeth Warren. But um, but she would, Vice President Elizabeth Warren, I think, would, oh, that would be something to watch. I would like to see that. Well, it, it could well yet. Hey, one more, Karen, one more Twitter question. Um, some months ago, there was an indictment, I think, out of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco about the Saudis placing spies inside Twitter to um, to keep track of what Saudi critics were saying and uh, perhaps uh, uh, more than that. Now, given everything we've learned since about uh, the way the Saudis were monitoring their critics, uh, one of whom was Jamal Khashoggi, who was ultimately murdered by the Saudis, how worrisome was the fact that a, a foreign government could place people inside Twitter? Oh, I'm sure uh, they're there now. From, I'm sure every yeah. government has people inside these tech companies. I, don't, I wouldn't even doubt it. I don't even. It's very difficult. I know people inside tech companies worry about this. Uh, in this case, it was two people. You know, the Saudis are a particular strain of thugs that are uh, that are amazing how much money they get to put into technology startups. They did through the Vision Fund, which was uh, run by Masayoshi Son. That was $500 billion that the Saudis put in. Uh, I think it was something like that. It was some enormous number. And, and you know, MBS came to Silicon Valley and he was visiting the campus of Google and doing all kinds of cocktail parties and this and that. And they still take enormous money, amounts of money from the Saudis, which is because they're a big funder of these kind of things. I have called them thugs. I, you know, I, I like I know that you say the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. He was hacked to death. OK, let's just be clear what happened to him. And so I find it really interesting that Silicon Valley, people who talk about being progressive are a lot, you know, and especially there's people jailed in Saudi Arabia, women for just uh, pushing driving and things like that. The money they take from the Saudis is really astonishing, uh, astonishing. So I, and, and them being inside there, of course, they are. Of course, they they tried to bug Jeff Bezos. Of course, they tried to get it's of course, they're going to do this thing because they don't have because uh, they, they are they are they also operate with impunity and with a lot of money. And and um, and, you know, I don't know what to say. I find it really disturbing. Um, they've been buying up media companies lately. Who, who has the, the Saudis? Saudis? Through PIF, really? through their through their big investment fund, the uh, it's PIF, uh, invest, uh, the Saudi investment fund is called something, mm. whatever. Anyway, um, they they bought a big stake in Disney, some Facebook, I think, like that. Now that's public buying of stocks, and there's nothing right. you can do to stop those. Uh, but they've been doing heavy investments in uh, media and technology lately. 
One more thing we have to worry about. Well, Kara, it is really great that you joined us. I've been wanting to get you on for some time. I should point out to our listeners that many, many years ago, Kara and I were both on the Washington Post business staff, along with Malcolm Gladwell, another... Uh, Malcolm was on the Metro uh, desk, and he didn't no, no, sound no. like Malcolm Gladwell. He was, wasn't he on the... Yeah, yeah, he was on business. He used to sit next to me on business. Uh, little did I know he would become the... Um, he was a different Malcolm Titan. Gladwell. Yes, wasn't yes. Well... I was a Washington I was a Washington Post copy aide then and I looked up to both of you and um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, here yeah, I yeah. am on a on a podcast with you guys. Listen to me, Danny. I delivered mail at the Washington Post. So I win uh, hands down when I was at college. I delivered mail for I think Michael Isakoff. I'm certain I <laughs> Well, um, I probably still have some of that mail someplace. But, uh, from, anyway, from, listen. From prisoners, no doubt. <laughs> Michael had a really gross desk, as I recall. (laughs) All right. All right. Let's not uh, share too much uh, personal information here. But anyway, hey, thanks a lot and keep it up. We'll be following your columns in The New York Times. And I should add, you're taking your podcast to The New York Times. Yes, I am. It's going to appear. It's going to I think September is when it's going to start again. But I have currently the Recode Decode podcast and the Pivot podcast at Vox Media. And the the Pivot podcast is staying at New York Magazine, which is owned by Vox. And and Recode Decode is going to end. I'm going to start a new po- interview podcast at What's the New it? York Times. Have you got a name for it yet, or is that uh, secret? <laughs> I don't. There's no secrets. <laughs> How about there's no secrets? There's a name. <laughs> yeah. there are no secrets from Kara. That's that's clearly uh, yeah. true. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank Good you, Kara. It was great. Take care. Bye. Shortly after we taped this interview, Twitter actually did slap a fact check label on some other presidential tweets in which Trump referred to mail-in voting as fraudulent. Twitter's label states, get the facts about mail-in ballots, and then includes a link that takes readers to news stories describing Trump's claims as unsubstantiated. But the social media company so far has done nothing about correcting Trump's tweets, suggesting Joe Scarborough might have murdered a former staffer. We now have with us Ann Coulter, conservative provocateur, author of the book In Trump We Trust, who in recent days has been sending out a somewhat different message on Twitter. And welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Good to be here. So we have had you on several times before because, uh, in my view, you were one of the more influential supporters of Donald Trump when he first ran for president. Indeed, his uh, initial campaign announcement borrowed liberally from your book, Attacking Mexican Immigration. I was not attacking Mexican immigration. I was attacking all immigration. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for the clarification. Although I think the president was pretty specific about Mexicans when he made his campaign statement. In any case, after supporting Donald Trump all these years, writing two books, boosting his candidacy and his presidency, you go ballistic in recent days, calling him, and I quote, a complete moron of a president, quote, the most disloyal actual retard that has ever set foot in the Oval Office, 
a, quote, complete blithering idiot and, quote, a shallow and broken man. So my question to you is you've had hissy fits with Donald Trump before. Have you finally and irrevocably broken from Donald Trump? Well, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> means you will not support well, him are you gonna anymore. Su- are you going to support him in the 2020 election? My little vote. Um, I'll probably write in Jeff Sessions. No, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, but my vote doesn't really matter. Um, I'm, it's one vote. But I'm mad at him for this. I, I mean, this really is this really is beyond the pale. It was it was his disgusting, disloyal, um, womanish for him to keep tweeting that his, those hysterical tweets against him. Well, against who? Tell us what you're talking about. Oh, I'm tw- sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Jeff Sessions. The issue is Jeff Sessions, magnificent senator, um, gentleman, not corrupt. He was Jesse Helms to to Trump's Ronald Reagan, although I'll probably be struck by lightning for putting Reagan and Trump in the same sentence. Um, he, he, you know, fought amnesty for years. I mean, he's good on, on all issues, but on the immigration issue, very few Republicans are because the big donors want the cheap labor, not Jeff Sessions cares more about the country. So back when the entire Republican apparatus, the RNC, Fox News, talk radio hosts were demeaning and sneering at Trump soon after he declared and was clearly making the issues I had brought up, which came up before he ran. So I did not write two books promoting Trump. I wrote Adios America. He picked up the themes of Adios America and in a somewhat ham-handed way used them to win the presidency. Jeff Sessions stepped forward and endorsed Trump. I mean, that was months before even Chris Christie, the first other important Republican to endorse, or the second important Republican, um, major Republican to endorse Trump came along introduced him in an Alabama rally, was was part of the campaign, which is relevant to what we're saying now. Then he was he was appointed attorney general by by President Trump. Trump creates well, Trump and you, Michael Lysikoff, create a mess with this whole Russia nonsense. You'll remember um, people forget this. I wrote about it in Resistance is Futile, taking Trump's side, I might add. And I still do on on these issues. <laughs> it was just classic idiotic Trump. Um, so Trump has the attorney general and the assistant attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, also appointed by Donald Trump, not appointed by Jeff Sessions, um, write this letter. He wants to get rid of Comey, didn't fire him when he first got when he when Trump first became president, as he should have. And as Jeff Sessions re- recommended, just start with a clean slate. So the Russia nonsense starts bubbling up. Um, Jared Kushner, who was not part of the deal, as far as Trump supporters knew, (laughs) that wasn't mentioned on the campaign trail, but he's, you know, the co-president. He tells Trump, no, no, you got to fire James Comey, head of the FBI. Democrats will love it. (laughs) They're going to be so happy. And let me stop you here. It is important, although it's information from three years ago. All this has been known to all of us for quite a while. What what set you off were Trump's attacks on your guy, Jeff Sessions. But this is what he's, he's attacking him for. He's attacking him for recusing You himself. can keep talking, but this is what the entire heart of the matter is. So um, he gets, Trump gets Rod Rosenstein and Sessions to write this kabuki letter 
um, recommending the firing of Comey. It goes out there. This is what started the whole Russian investigation. It's very important. I mean, other than you and your, your allies, Isakov, this is the heart of the entire matter. They send out that letter two days later saying, you know, it's because of Comey's handling of this, that, and the other thing. Totally, you know, respectable letter. Trump takes the letter, fires James Comey. Then he goes on Lester Holt two days later, announces that letter from Sessions and, and Rosenstein was just a scam. No, it was my decision to fire Comey. And I did it because of Russia. Bam! Editorials all over. The world goes mad. There's going to be a special prosecutor. Trump and the White House come back and say, oh, the Lester Holt interview was edited. Um, no, it's classic Trump. He does it all the time. I think your point here is that is that Trump brought it upon himself, the Russia investigation, which no doubt has large elements of truth. Because, but but my point is that's we've known that for some time. No, no, yet no. You, you continue... guys are taking the position. Oh, it's because he's he colluded with Russia. No, he didn't. It was crazy from to begin with. It's crazy now. So he spends the next three years blaming Jeff Sessions for the fact that he has a special prosecutor, something that he clearly one hundred percent brought upon himself without question. It may be a stupid investigation. That isn't the point. Why it got started is because he went on Lester Holt and said, it was my decision. It was because of Russia. So for the next three years, unaware that he is president of the United States, you know, all these right wingers making fun of, of Joe Biden, who doesn't seem to know he's running for president. Yet Trump doesn't know he is president. So instead of if he's mad at Sessions and Sessions submits his resignation the day after the special prosecutor is, is assigned because he has to recuse himself, obviously, unquestionably, for, for anything. This is an investigation into the campaign. The attorney general was part of the campaign. Of course, he cannot oversee an investigation into a campaign that he was part of. And these morons who, you know, who will repeat anything Trump says, trying to tell me, oh, he didn't have to recuse himself. He had to recuse himself. This is absurd. Of course, he had to recuse himself. Okay. Trump I'll, refuses I'll... to take it. And for three years, Trump does not fire him, which he could do, or just accept the resignation letter as the president of the United States. No, instead, the big baby just denounced trash talks his own attorney general on Twitter. That's how the big man, you know, from Apprentice, oh, he'll go around and fire people. No, he can't even fire his own employees because he's a gigantic fruitcake. He's been tormenting this, this magnificent human being, Jeff Sessions, for three years. Now Jeff Sessions is running for his old seat, held by a Democrat. Why? Because Trump meddled in the last Alabama Republican primary, and we ended up with Roy Moore. Remember, that was also engineered by, by, by Donald Trump. So apparently over the weekend, when I was busy attending social distancing dinners, Trump starts going after Sessions again, blaming him for the Russian investigation that started three years ago because of my weak-kneed, cowardly attorney general. And I happened to see this at 2.30 in the morning and, and started denouncing him for it, reminding people that the investigation was entirely Trump's fault. Sessions was a magnificent attorney general. He was the only one keeping Trump's campaign promises, since Trump himself clearly was not. Um, and he's running against, oh, come on, a former football coach. 
And I'm sorry, I know you, you media people, you must have a file, you know, three feet deep on Tuberville, Tommy Tuberville. I just did a little poking around on Google and already I can find a million embarrassing things about Tuberville. If Tuberville well, were uh, to win, it'll be dumped on him and we'll, Alabama, the red state in the union will end up with another Democratic senator for another six years. OK, and, and we're, we're going to get to the race in a second. I'm curious what you think about that race. But I just want to follow up on Issachar first question. And, you know, given the fact that, you know, you think Trump is a blithering idiot, that he doesn't even know that he's president, that he can't even pretend to be a decent, compassionate human being, uh, you know, all of those things that you've said. I mean, I know you say that, you know, me, oh, me and my my little vote, but there's more than just your vote. I mean, you, as Mike was pointing out, you were you are influential with the base, with Trump's base. Uh, you have been in the past. I mean, so are you going to devote yourself for the next, you know, six months to, I don't know, write op-ed pieces, do the kinds of things that might convince are you gonna go, the base Are you going to go George Conway on us? Because, I mean, the reason is because for, you know, there are a number of times you have come out and you have done this and you have attacked Trump and then you kind of get back on the Trump train. So why should anyone believe all the things that you're saying now unless you actually, you know, go all George Conway on him? Well, I'm definitely not going George Conway. I mean, Conway seems to have abandoned things he believed in. I don't understand these never-Trumpers. If you care about the country, then you care about immigration. You'd care, for example, about keeping the Senate Republican. I mean, that's part of what my campaign is here. <laughs> Why aren't the never-Trumpers just, okay, screw Trump, we're voting against him, but Republicans do not let the Democrats have both the presidency and the Senate, because then we're going to lose judges, generals, everything. We lose everything. Let's campaign for Republican senators. Um, we're already going to be losing um, at least two or three. Um, I, I suppose I shouldn't keep naming the states. We're definitely losing. There are a few others that are that are that are possible to flip. The only state we have the possibility of flipping Dem to Republican is Alabama, and Trump is trying to ruin that. But all the uh, polls that I've seen show actually that uh, Tommy Tuberville is a, I mean, not a lot, but a, a strong, still a mildly stronger candidate against Doug Jones than Je Jeff Sessions would be. So one could argue that you're actually hurting the Republican chances of holding the Senate by supporting Sessions here. Not a chance. Why? It's only a only a liberal media person would say that. Um, number one, there are no good polls. Number two, Sessions was elected over and over again with 80 percent margins. The only thing that has hurt him now is Trump's idiotic attacks on him. Um, number three, am I on three now? Um, as I have, have cited periodically in Twitter, this is what the media always does. Oh, yeah, go for Tuberville. Oh, go for the Todd Aiken, Jack Ryan. He looks great. Uh, Mike Foley. And then they wait until the primary is over. There's no chance of Republicans replacing the candidate and dump their scandal sheet on the guy. And as I said, just poking around Google, I can find enough that, you know, Rachel Maddow could spend two weeks on this guy, Tuberville, a, a football coach. Right. I'm guessing there's a lot more in All there. Right. And, and before we get into the Alabama Senate race, which I promise you we will do, I just want to come back to, I think, what is a fundamental point here. Is this simply a hissy fit about 
what Trump is saying about your guys' sessions? Or do you finally accept that there are fundamental character defects with this guy, Donald Trump, that disqualifies, that should disqualify him from being president? You called him a complete moron. You called him a shallow and broken man. You said you wrote something else that I thought was even more revealing. Danny just alluded it to a little while ago. You wrote one in one of your tweets, COVID gave Trump a chance to be a decent, compassionate human being or pretending to be, but he couldn't even do that. So I come back to my question. Are you just pissed off about what he said about Jeff Sessions? Or do you accept that there is a true and disturbing character defect in Donald Trump's nature that ought to prevent him from being reelected as president? Um, well, um, well, the drop. And no, no, stick to that. I, I, is it is the problem what Trump said about Sessions or the problem about who? I'm just quoting what you wrote. I know, but your but your conclusion isn't my conclusion. Yes, he's a defective man. Does that mean he shouldn't be reelected? I don't know. I don't know. And how can you not know? Keep yelling over me. You're never going to get the answer <laughs> because I couldn't give you the answer. I think I've gotten the question like 17 times now. And every time I try to give you the answer, you start yelling right. at me. That give, give us give us the answer. Here's the answer. If you read in Trump, we trust you would know I am fully aware of, he, of his defects. Um, um, I think all of his voters were, but we thought that would be an advantage. Turns out it isn't. Um, one of his defects is utter, complete disloyalty. That being the case, but the idea that we went into this not realizing Donald Trump had defects. No, fully, fully aware. They happen to be defects that may make it that um, we'd be better off with with um, one, two, however many years you get out of Biden. Could be that we'd better ju to just get him out of office. Um, I'm not really sure about that because we live in a in a world where it's, it's an either or choice. It's not. Trump or, you know, some mystery candidate. It's Trump or Joe Biden and probably an extreme social justice warrior who will, who will do nothing about cleaning up Wall Street. No, they'll get a blank check. Big corporate America and the tech giants will get a blank check. It will be pedals to the metal for, for four years on all the, the crazy social justice warrior, Black Lives Matter, transgenders. That's all we're getting out of the modern but, Democratic but, Party, which is now Anne. promising. And Joe Biden, last okay. point, Joe Biden yeah. has now promised on television to first day in office, legalize all illegal aliens. So, I, I mean, if you have Charles Manson in the White House, I, I still have a choice between Charles Manson and a guy who says he's going to legalize all illegal aliens on day one. Okay, but what if I'm hearing you uh, right, and you're saying that Biden might be not that you're there yet, but might be the better choice? I think the conclusion to my answer just there kind of put a rest to that. Um, what I'm saying is that the way Michael phrased the question, are you admitting that he's defective and you have to vote against him? No, I'm admitting he's defective, but we have a two-party system, so it's not Trump or. Um, you know, secret fairy queen. Well, we won't tell you about it. Well, I, I Trump would, I would. and I just described the world and the alternative. But the point isn't, again, the reason I keep saying it's the point isn't who I'm voting for. Is this guy, does he have a chance of winning re-election? I'm not the only one out there noticing this utter disloyalty, not only to Jeff Sessions, but that's, 
That's a metaphor for his disloyalty to all of his supporters, whom he has done nothing for. I mean, so the tax it, cuts, the, not ending the carried interest deduction. He's, he's basically jab exclamation points who trash tweets from the White House. So yeah, that might still be better than Joe Biden. Oh, yes, that might still be better than Joe Biden and nothing but transgender rights and, and Black Lives Matter matters for four years. Um, but he, he's a big betrayer, and, I, and those tend not to do well in politics. So I guess we'll have to see. Well, you know, technically, uh, he has not been renominated by the Republican Party yet. You may have only one little vote, but you have a loud voice. Is it time for Republicans such as yourself to be thinking about dumping Donald Trump and replacing him with another candidate to run uh, against Joe Biden? Nah, that'll never no. work. Well, I, I, I know you're trying to make news here, but I'm just not I'm not going to agree with this. You're not going to get the headline Coulter won't vote for Trump. Here's your headline for you. Well, the headline Coulter will vote for Trump would be fine, too. We just want to know what you believe. <laughs> I don't think anybody cares who I'm voting for. The issue is I'm giving you analysis, not, you know, my personal vote. You could talk to a homeless person for that. Here's the only interesting prediction I have. And it may be impossible for it to happen because polls just seem to be utterly irrelevant in the era of Trump. We saw what happened in 2016. And I might add, it occurs to me that I kind of think Republicans, the Trump, the Trump bots are doing the same, making the same mistake the Hillary campaign made. And that is anyone who did not, you know, worship at the hemline of the Queen Hillary would be gang attacked by the media and and thrown overboard and you're, oh well, she's so wonderful she's so wonderful and then everybody's surprised that that people's that the public's publicly stated position did not match up with their privately cast ballots come election day well the trump bots are doing the same thing i mean i've gotten since my tweet storm against trump i've gotten enormous support online probably more than for anything i've done in years some are public conservatives who would never say so publicly. Some are private conservatives who would never say so publicly. How many people are secretly agreeing with me out there and afraid to say anything? Because that's Trump's base. And they may end up being surprised. Maybe instead of gang attacking anyone who points out Trump isn't keeping his promises, try to get the guy to keep his promises. Well, some might argue it's a little late for that. We're, you know, three and a half years into his presidency. And if he hasn't kept them now, it would look pretty cynical for him to suddenly trying to please the Coulter wing of the Republican Party. But what I, I that is interesting. You've gotten you say you've gotten a lot of positive reaction, if I heard you correctly, from uh, this uh, tweet storm. What about from those um, inside the White House itself, with whom you, you know, you do have a number of connections there, starting with your one-time friend, Steve Miller, Jeff Sessions' long, loyal chief spokesman, now yeah, there in the White House, writing the speeches side by side with the president, standing behind him, behind him every step of the way. Uh, what are you um, what are you hearing from Steve Miller? Well, you haven't been following my Twitter feed closely. <laughs> I attacked him, too, um, yeah. because I've got to say, I've been wondering for three years. 
these these humiliating tweets against Sessions that that Trump's been sending out with loyal <laughs> loyal session staffer at his elbow. What is he saying to Trump? Yeah, what's the answer? Speaking of disloyalty, we have not spoken for for we have not spoken for a while. Um, my other my other prediction for you, which as I was starting to say in the era of Trump, I just don't think polls mean anything. I don't know that anybody's going to know this, but if it looks like strongly looks like Trump is going down, he's going to lose the election. My prediction is probably at the worst possible moment for the Republican Party, he'll come out and announce, well, I've done it. I've made America great again. I'm not running again. Here, take my vice president. And when, do, when does that happen? It would, I, like I say, it may be impossible to test because the polls are so suspicious. Also, right wingers, and with good reason, think, oh, screw it. They said what the poll said we were going to lose last time. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Um, maybe Trump will say the same thing and no one will ever think that no one will ever see it coming. Although it may not happen. I mean, incumbent presidents do tend to win reelection. And I think the Democrats have not been covering themselves in glory during this COVID crisis, giving us a little taste of the left-wing fascism to come. I actually think Trump, um, whatever <laughs> whatever his flaws, is looking a lot more desirable because of the coronavirus, um, and not because of anything he's done, um, but because of the way the Democrats are acting and the media is acting. So just picking up on your last point or last semi-prediction there, is that your preferred outcome that Trump just uh, uh, throws in the towel and decides not to run again? No, screw over the Republican Party that way. I mean, that guarantees a Biden election. So what do you want, Ann Coulter? You can't tell us whether you want Trump to be reelected or not. You can't tell us whether you want somebody to replace him. You can't tell us whether you'd like him to just quit and not run for reelection. What is it you want? I'd like to go on a vacation to an island for the next four years where I have no idea what's happening in the United States of America, then come back and get... Chris Kobach or Ron DeSantis elected president. <laughs> but actually playing along with your your hypothetical, and if he did drop out and said, I'll give you my vice president, and if Pence did beat Biden, which you may be skeptical that that would happen, would you be satisfied with a Pence president? Do you think he would be would he be more loyal on this, these issues, or is he a squish? No, he, I mean, he'd be loyal to the donors, as he always has been. This is why I still would have written in Trump We Trust. Pence would never, be, would never promise to protect American workers. No Republicans would. Very few Republicans, I can't say no, obviously, the two I just mentioned would. Um, maybe a few of them have woken up because of, because of the Trump campaign and how this utterly ridiculous creature won the White House just by picking up the $1,000 bill on the ground. Nobody else would touch it. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. No, Americans keep voting for less immigration and the politicians keep giving us more immigration. Um, so, you know, any, any you know, half-bright politician could win election on immigration. That's never, been, that's never been an issue of Mike Pence's. And I don't know. I mean, and I think it's going to be, I, I'm, not, I'm not generally one to say, um, we win by losing. I think that's a mistake. Take the victories you can get as weak and pathetic as they are, and then move on and try to win another victory after that. So I suppose, I suppose, <laughs> I don't think Pence would be better than Trump. Um, he's never promised to do any of this stuff. 
Um, I don't think he'd be humiliating Jeff Sessions on Twitter. There would obviously be more decorum in the White House, but there would be more decorum if you put, you know, Zippy the Chimp in the White House. Um, so that's not that's not much of a selling point. Maybe it would be better if we had four years of um, social justice warriors and then and then tried to take out an incumbent Democrat. Hey, and um, on the Alabama Senate race uh, between Sessions and Tuberville, uh, I've been looking at your Twitter feed just today where you're clearly going after Tuberville on a lot of fronts, bringing up uh, the reason I'm asking just to set this question up a little better, we're spending the first part of the show talking about Trump's tirade about Joe Scarborough and, uh, you know, the tragedy of what happened to uh, a uh, former uh, worker in Scarborough's um, uh, office, which Trump is using to promote wild conspiracy theories. You are going after Tuberville, the guy running against your man Sessions, bringing up stuff about, you know, some uh, a driving accident his wife was involved in eight years ago. I uh, Demanding the press ask questions about this. I don't even see the relevance of why you would want to bring something like that up in a Senate race between two candidates. What does that have to do with anything? Except trying to throw mud. You need to be more of an assiduous Ann Coulter Twitter follower. Um, Because the prediction I've been making about Tuberville all along is um, that he's going to be another Roy Moore. I mean, we don't have to go back in history to the Hoover administration to see what happened. Three fantastic, it's almost, you know, point by point so far. You have three candidates, open borders, Republican, a good patriotic Republican, and Roy Moore. Um, so Trump, taking the, the fine political advice of Jared Kushner and Mitch McConnell, endorses the open borders Republican, Luther Strange. He loses. We're left with, with Roy Moore. Well, it was Roy. It doesn't matter. But we're left with Roy Moore because of Trump's intervention into the primary. Um, Roy Moore goes on to lose. Now, when did all the stories about Roy Moore come out? Was it during the primary? Was it when he was running against Luther Strange? No, it was after he had won. Same thing with Todd Aiken. Same things with, wait, it wasn't Mike Foley. It was Mark Foley, the guy in Florida who had sent the inappropriate texts to mail pages. Um, ABC had that news. The media doesn't report news the way a news organization would. Oh, news has come across the transom. Let's report it. No, they wait until Republicans are stuck with a candidate and then dump the scandals on them. And I've been predicting the media has, has a pile of files on Tuberville because they want to save an Alabama Senate seat in the hands of the Democrats, of the Democrats, they're going to save that seat. The media will for Doug Jones. So they are just salivating. My prediction is waiting for Tuberville. Well, my hope will not win, but hoping Tuberville gets the nomination. So suddenly they can come rushing forward. And that's why I've been saying this forever. And I've been pointing out in these tweets, if this is what I can find, um, you know, in 10 seconds on Google, what else do they have on this guy? Isakoff, have you ever held on to uh, a a scandal (laughs) involving a a politician uh, so you could so you could help the the party uh, you know, that you favor. I'm, I'm, I mean, that I'm sounds a little conspiratorial. Trying to find a case where uh, I wanted to hold back on a story. Come on, and yeah, uh, okay. that's kind of silly. To the two honest journalists, come on, Michael. Um, <laughs> yeah. Explain why ABC hung on to the Mark Foley thing until the day after the primary. 
And by the way, he had to withdraw. He's hiding in a hole right now. Same yeah. thing with Jack Ryan in Illinois, who would have beaten Barack Obama, that magnificent candidate. He was like a Chris Kobach, Harvard, handsome. All right. Look, that's, that's hardly... And then wait until he wins the primary. No, this is important. You're going to challenge me on this. I'm going to give you examples. They wait until Jack Ryan wins the primary to run against Barack Obama in the Senate in Illinois. And suddenly, miraculously, get a judge in California the next day. Reporters in Chicago had that the next day. I know Chicago reporters. They were reading it before it was technically released. The judge, liberal judge, releases those papers. We find out that Jack Ryan... His wife accused him in divorce papers, which are, you know, there, that's where you want the truth. Go to divorce papers. Um, had to accuse Jack Ryan of taking her to sex clubs and asking her to have sex with him privately. He has to pull out of the race, and Republicans have to stick in Alan Keyes. That's how we got Senator Barack Obama. So don't tell me the media doesn't do this. Okay, well, I... Uh... I, I hear you, but basically you're sort of spouting conspiracy theories about the media that we're all in in league with the Democrats. Man, we're 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 out of time, but I do want to uh, assure you that we will continue to monitor your Twitter feed, whether you're, you know, where you are now in California or off on that desert island you long to be uh, uh, at. And um, I thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Good to talk to the only two honest journalists in America. <laughs> okay. Is that the That's... badge of approval that you want, Isikoff? <laughs> <laughs> I'll take whatever I can I get. Yeah. All, right. All, right. All, right. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Anne. Take Ann. care, Anne. Okay. Goodbye. Okay. Bye-bye. You. Thanks to New York Times contributing writer and Recode co-founder Kara Swisher and conservative pundit and author Ann Coulter for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.